like they said, my name's Ian. I'm one of the pastors here at Common Ground. And with La, we give leadership to Bosch PM. And we have some exciting family news over lockdown. La and I have fallen pregnant. We have another little crew coming along. Yes, we, lockdown was good to us. And um, we had one of those lockdown babies. And we're super excited. If you know any of our journey uh, trying to fall pregnant with our first child and even our journey with this one, it is such a mercy and grace of God. And we just are so excited to share that joy with everyone out there. We've been going through this amazing series, the Citizen Series, where we've been looking at the reality that we are capital C citizens, that our primary identity, our primary citizenship is that of heaven, even though we have to work out what that means as we live in this world. It's been incredible as we've unpacked this and journeyed, and and I'm so excited to talk about today what it means to be citizens in an unholy world. Now, there is so much beauty in this world, like children being born and um, experiences that we have and sunsets and there's just wonderful beauty all around us. But at the exact same time, I want to propose something to us. I don't think that anyone uh, would argue with me when I say this world isn't the way it should be. In fact, I think that it is a universal experience for citizens of earth that we have this nagging sense and even experience of this world not being what it should be. This world not being perfect, this world not being the way we want it to be. And this is shown in so many ways. We see it through suffering and injustice and poverty and racism and confusion and cruelty and disunity and polarization and the destruction we cause to ourselves, to others and the world that we live in. And right now we live in this time of corona and the the effects it's having on our health, our relationships and our economies. So I don't think anyone is arguing that the world is broken, but rather we're asking the question, why is the world so broken? Why is the world so unjust? And in answering that question, there's a lot of finger pointing and polarization that's taking place as we try to figure that out. And Rigby did such a good job two weeks ago speaking to that polarization and what God would say to it. But today we're going to jump into a text that I think will give us the answer to that question that actually transcends and unifies all of us as we try to grapple with that question, why is the world so broken? And it does it in really surprising ways. So we're going to pray and then read the text together. Father, I pray that you would work in us today, that you would, you, we would encounter you, the living God, that as we unpack your words, they would speak to us and change us, God, that we would see you for who you really are. We would see you more truly. And as citizens of heaven, we would understand what that means more fully. God, would you do something unique and wonderful in us this today as we trust in you and rest in you. Great. Let's read Titus 2 verses 11 through 14 together. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works." This is an incredible piece of scripture that gets to the very heart, the very center of why Jesus stepped into human history, the very heart and center of the mission of Jesus in this world. And it's going to speak to that, that question that we've just asked. Why is the world so broken? Why is the world so unjust? And we're going to unpack it in, in four ways. Firstly, we're going to look at it under the heading of citizens in an unholy world. Secondly, citizens set apart in an unholy world. And thirdly, citizens trained to live in an unholy world. And finally, citizens waiting with hope for a holy world. Let's start with that first one. Citizens in an unholy world. 
And Paul, in this text, he speaks about this current age and he, he uses some words to describe what this current age is like, what, what the heart of this current age is. He speaks of words, he uses words like ungodliness and worldly passion and lawlessness. And we're going to look at those words to understand why the world is the way it is. Firstly, ungodliness is simply the opposite of godliness. It's everything that would stand in opposition to God and his ways, his nature, his laws, his desires, his wants. So we learn here of this present age that it is an age in opposition to God. Then we look at this idea of worldly passions and worldly passions are passions that are disconnected from the reality of God as creator where our passions and desires are just for the things of this world, divorced from the reality of what they mean about God and what he intended them to be used for. And then finally, what Paul has to say about this present age is that it is a lawless age, that it is consumed by lawlessness. And that is a word that, that resonates with me. I really do feel that in so many ways that, that like never before there is no objective moral standard or reality that every single person is trying to figure that out or is determined to figure it out for themselves, what is good and true. And it leaves us feeling like the world is a bit lawless. And what Paul means by this word lawless here in its context is that it's everything that stands in opposition to the laws of God or, or to act in ways that oppose the laws of God or go against what he would set up as good and true and lawful. So what we learn about this present age is that it's disconnected from what God would call true, moral, and lawful. So Paul, right off the bat, simply says that the reason that the world is the way that it is, is because it is unholy. That's the word that sums up these three words, that it is, it is an unholy world that we live in, that this present age is unholiness. Now, I just want to pause here and talk about the opposite of unholiness, which is Holiness. Because I think for, for so many of us and many of us, the idea of the world being an unholy place doesn't worry us that much. We don't see what's wrong with that. Because for some of us, we believe that unholiness is the fun option and holiness is the boring option. I think of people who would say things like a halo is just something to be polished and it's a lot more fun without it. Or I think of people who would say that um, holiness is just for religious people who get it right and they get their holier than now badge stuck on their lapel. We don't have a great relationship with this word holiness. And what I hope to do now is just show how beautiful this word holiness is. Yes, it, it speaks of the moral purity of God. It speaks of the moral laws of God. But these moral laws and this moral purity isn't disconnected from reality. It's not like the speed limit when you're trying to drive a Jaguar. It's not that at all. It's not disconnected from anything. What it is, is the, is the reality, what is true and good and real the, that God has built into the very fabric of the universe, the very fabric of this world. The, the moral laws of God are as true as the law of gravity. It is something that is life-giving. It keeps us connected to this earth. And to reject the, the moral laws of God is to jump off a bridge and, and declare gravity is not true. And yes, it's going to be exhilarating for about seven seconds and then you're going to cease to exist because the law of gravity exists and the moral laws of God exist. And where we align to the moral laws of God, there is flourishing and life. We're aligning to the very reality of what is true and good in this world. 
But that word holiness goes is so much richer than just speaking about moral reality. It's also speaking about God himself being holy and set apart, distinct and different. That he was the only one uh, powerful enough to create the world and he is the only one powerful enough to sustain the world. One of the most common analogies used of this is to think of the sun, which is the very thing that, that gives life to this world, but it is also the very thing that sustains it, holds it in its orbit, and everything in our universe revolves around it. It has the power to sustain life, and it has the power and weight and glory to hold everything in its place. So think of the sun as something of, of what it means, of what holiness means. And, and there's something of, yes, our relationship to the sun matters. If we find ourselves watching a sunset next to the ocean, it is beautiful and glorious and, and really enjoyable. If we find ourselves in a desert without any water under the scorching heat of the sun, it is incredibly unpleasant. So yes, our relationship to holiness matters, but holiness in and of itself is glorious. It's like if you get to the, too close to the sun, you'll disintegrate. But the reason for that is not because the sun is bad, but because it is so good and powerful and able to produce and sustain life. This is what holiness is. But not only do we need to understand what holiness is, we need to understand that there are wonderful effects to holiness. When we align our lives to the moral realities that God has set up in his creation, and when we um, understand that goodness and life flow from the holiness of God, I think we'll have a better desire and want and hunger for holiness. You see, everything that is good in this world, everything that is true in this world, everything that, that causes your soul to resonate with something bigger than itself is because of the holiness of God. And that's things like beauty and nature, the warmth of the sun, seeing radical generosity, sacrificial service motivated by love, the miracle of a child being born, justice being upheld or brought about, the taste of good food and wine, intimacy in marriage, deep friendships and connections between people, celebration of diversity and our wonderful difference of cultures, and ultimately the life-giving, joy-producing presence of God in our everyday life. These are some of the things of what it is to experience the holiness of God, to taste the goodness and how truly good God is. So that's what, what the opposite of unholiness is. But what Paul has just done for us is he's shown us that this world is unholy. That's not what it is. And yes, we get tastes of the holiness of God because he's this, he's this world's creator and sustainer. But so often we, we experience injustice and pain in this world. And the reason that the world is unholy, the Bible gives us, is because of sin. Because our very hearts are unholy. Sin is a word that captures those words that Paul used. Ungodliness, worldly passion, and lawlessness is all captured in this word sin. So it's not just that the world out there is unholy, but our very hearts in here are unholy. Paul says this clearly in Romans when he says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I said earlier that, that the, the solution, the answer to that question, why is the world so unjust, would unify us in interesting ways. This is one of those interesting ways. You see, this reality of sin, our heart condition, our posture towards God, our rebellion against Him, unifies us because it transcends every divide, every category that we would use, no matter what your history is, no matter what your experience of life is, no matter whether you're male or female, married or single, no matter our ethnicity, our greatest problem is sin. And we are unified in that reality. 
You see, not only are we unified in the question, why is the world so unjust? Why is the world so broken? We're unified in its answer because of my sin and because of your sin. The world is the way it is. And you see, what that means is that the problem with the world doesn't primarily start out there. The problem with the world primarily starts in here, in my heart. All the suffering, injustice, poverty, greed, racism, evil, cruelty, disunity, and polarization, and the destruction that we cause to ourselves, to people, and the world we live in is primarily because this world is in opposition to God. And the world is in opposition to God because our hearts are in opposition to God. You see, the greatest injustice of all is our personal rebellion against a just and holy God. And the effects of that sin on our identity, our society, and our relationships causes the world to be the way it is. You see, if we don't get this, what's going to happen is we're going to start to try and fix things by dealing with the effects of sin in this world. And we're going to point to things that are wrong in this world that are, exist outside of ourselves. And we'll say, if we just fix that, then this world will be better. And, and there's lots that I want to fix and see fixed. But that is not primarily where we start. Primarily, we need to acknowledge that we need God to do something with our hearts, my heart your heart if we want to see true and lasting change. See, we are citizens of an unholy world and it is our personal sin and rebellion against a holy God that makes it that way. Let's go on to the second point. Citizens set apart in an unholy world. And so now we have to ask ourselves the question, what does God do about that? What is what is what does God think about that? I don't know about you, but when I experience injustice towards myself, I am very quick to want justice. And very often I will slip over from justice to vengeance. If I am wronged, someone offends me, I am very quick to want justice. And you know what? To want vengeance, it's not good for anyone. But to want justice is good. It is something that God desires, justice. And to want justice is not a bad thing. But I want us to understand that justice against those who have opposed God is not where God starts. Yes, he is going to return and he's going to wrap up human history and he's going to bring about perfect justice, but that's not where he starts. And for anyone who lives in this present age, who comes face to face with the reality that they need something in their own heart to be changed. They come face to face with the reality that their heart is unholy and in opposition to God. They will read these following words with great wonder and gratitude. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. You see, again, we see this unifying reality. All people are offered grace. All people are offered the message of Jesus. All people are told that you need saving and there is a way to be saved in the person of Jesus. This offer, all people, transcends again every way in which we would try to distinguish or divide ourselves. And what happens in this moment? Instead of just judgment appearing, and God bringing about swift judgment for our injustice against him. Instead of that appearing, what appears is the grace of God and this offer of grace. 
And verse 14 unpacks this idea of what this grace appearing actually looked like. Read with me. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself people for his own possession. Jesus appears. This grace of God appearing appears in the, in a, in the form of a person, Jesus. And he literally gives himself up to a brutal death on a cross. Instead of enacting justice on those who deserve it, he takes up justice on a cross so that he can offer those who deserve justice, peace and grace and restoration into relationship with him. And the brutality of the cross and the reality of the cross shows us two things that I think are incredibly important as we grapple with this question, why is this world so broken? Why is this world so unjust? Because it, it gives us somewhere, it shows us something about ourselves and it gives us somewhere to take the pain that's been caused to us. That first one, when you look at the cross and you see what Jesus has had to do on it to uphold justice and offer us grace, it reveals something about the depth of our rebellion against him. You see, I think there are many capital C citizens who, who walk around going, I'm not that bad. What I've done is not that bad. I'm not that unjust. And we, we somehow think we're okay that, that, yeah, we're a little bit bad, and, but, but we're, we're okay. But what the cross would reveal to us is that's what our rebellion against God deserved. That's what justice for our rebellion looks like. And it reveals to us actually the condition of our heart and how desperate we were for saving and how desperately we needed saving. But the second thing it does as a pastor, I hear about people's pain. It's one of the things that burdens me the most is walking with people and hearing what people have done to people. Hearing of the incredible injustices that have been done to each other. And they are real and they hurt and they are ugly. And if we mince our words about the cross and what Jesus was doing on the cross, what we do is we don't give people a space to take their pain. But when you've experienced incredible injustice in your life and you look to the cross and you see what Jesus did to uphold justice, he experienced the separation from the Father that we deserved and he experienced justice on our behalf. What you can do is with all the injustice that's been done to you and that you carry, you can take it to the cross and you can leave it there and you can trust that Jesus is a just king and that he will deal with every injustice that's been done against you and it frees you from carrying that pain any desire of vengeance or any need to fight for justice on your own it frees you to bring it to the one who is ultimately just and Jesus achieves something phenomenal on the cross when he goes to that cross and he gives himself up so that he can offer us grace what he, what he, he does is he purifies for himself a people for his own possession. He purifies for himself a people for his own possession. This is amazing. Instead of God's holy standard and his morality and his set-apartness being a standard that we continue to fall short of, what it becomes is a person, Jesus who steps into human history and wherever he goes and whoever he encounters and touches and whoever responds to him in faith, he makes pure. That was his mission, to purify for himself a people. We've been going through the book of Mark and there are amazing encounters with the person of Jesus. You see, what would happen is Jesus would touch sick people, impure people, people with disease. 
And instead of him becoming impure, they would be healed and made pure. Ezekiel speaks of the the holiness of God being like a river that flows out of the holiness of God into the desert and then finally into the Dead Sea. And wherever it flows, it brings life. It brings flourishing. And here we have the person of Jesus fully representing the holiness of God, bringing life and flourishing, purifying for himself a people. And anyone who is willing to admit their need, anyone who, who desires holiness, simply needs to go to the person of Jesus. And what's incredible is that it is a work that Jesus has done. This is the moment that you become a capital C citizen of Jesus, is when you, of heaven, is when you've encountered Jesus himself and given yourself fully and completely to his work in your life. I see a lot of people trying to fight sin backwards. I see a lot of people who are capital C citizens of heaven trying to fight sin in their lives to become pure, to become holy. And one of the biggest breakthroughs in my battles with all the sin in my life was when I realized that I don't fight to become pure. I fight because Jesus has made me pure, made me holy. I get to fight for what I already am in Jesus. But not only has he purified a people, he's made a people. And that's incredibly important because, again, we're not just saved into an individual faith, but we are saved, we're made pure, we're made holy to be in a people, to be a part of God's people. And I've missed this in this time of Corona. I've missed God's people. I've missed being around God's people. I felt the deficit of being in an unholy world, not surrounded by people who've been made holy by God, who spur me on to who I am in Christ, who call me upward to be Christ-like because I have been rescued and made pure by Christ. And I long for the day where I get to be with brothers and sisters and we get to call each other upwards into holiness again. but we have also been made a people for his own possession. I find that phrase interesting. Why didn't he just say his possession? We know that God is jealous over his people, that he sets us apart out of an unholy world and he says, you are my people. Why does he say my own people for his own possession? Why does he add the own in there? It's a sense of intimacy. It's a sense of closeness. It's a sense of these belong to me. They are mine. I love them. He's trying to declare the reality that one of the most beautiful phrases in the Old Testament, God speaks of his people. He says, I will be their God and they will be my people. What has been captured here is the reality that we are God's people. We have his presence with us. The number one thing that makes us distinct and unique and stand out in an unholy world as God's people is that his very presence and power is at work in us and through us and with us. When we understand this, we go out into an unholy world as a holy people, reflecting the grace and the holiness of our Savior. Paul says this in 1 Timothy. He says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. We understand that we've been rescued by grace and made holy by grace and that there is no unforgivable injustice in the world because the greatest injustice was forgiven. Jesus made a way for us to be reunited to him. I think this is really important. There was a news article 
that came out of America of a car that flipped off a bridge with a mother and two children into a river. And as that car was in the river, a man saw and he jumped into the river and he rescued the mother and he swam down and he rescued the child and he swam down and he rescued the third child. But in rescuing the third child, he himself died. And the whole world and everyone who reads that story would look in and go, that man is a hero. But for the people he rescued out of that car, he's so much more. He's their savior. And the reason this matters is because if we, if we as Christians, as we as Christ followers see Jesus primarily as our hero, what we'll do is we'll have our agenda, we'll have our thing that is the most important thing in our lives and we will co-opt Jesus, the mighty hero, to our agenda and we'll set him off and say, go and win it for us. But when you see Jesus as your savior, you realize you didn't have an agenda. You were just trying to get out of a sinking car. And he came and he rescued you when you didn't deserve to be rescued. And he's given you his purposes and he's called you to be his people with his plans under his rule, following his laws and, dis- and displaying his glory. Our lives are forever changed when we understand that Jesus is a savior, not just our hero. And when we understand that we've been saved by grace, it means that we can go out into this world And we can pray for everyone to experience the same grace we've received. Able to pray for the oppressor and the oppressed. Able to pray for the rich and the poor. Able to pray for the murderer and the murdered. Able to pray for the cruel and the hurting. Able to pray for the racist and the racially oppressed. Able to pray for the just and the unjust. Able to pray for the bully and the bullied. That all of them would be met with the same grace that we have been met with. Because we know that the grace of God is the only thing that can bring eternal change. So we are citizens who are no longer unholy. But we are citizens who have been set apart in an unholy world to display and point to the life-giving holiness of God. And then we are citizens trained in unholiness. Our third point, citizens trained in unholiness. Not only have we been set apart in this world as holy, but we're being trained in holiness. The same grace that redeems us and makes us pure is the same grace that causes us to align more and more to the reality of that holiness. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. You see that, that, that grace has a very real effect, effect on our lives in this present age. It changes us, it grows us, it trains us. 1 Peter says this so powerfully. It says, as obedient children, I love that we are sons and daughters of God because of his finished work. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy You see that? We're no longer to be conformed to the ways of this world. We're no longer to be conformed and look like unholy people living in an unholy world, but rather we are to be conformed to the likeness of God. We'll be conformed to the likeness of our Father, who He Himself is holy. And grace trains us in this present age. Grace trains us in our current lives to say no to some things. We, we resist and say no to any ungodliness or worldly passion that exists. Why? Because grace has not just delivered us from the penalty of sin, 
but we are also delivered from the power of sin. We're not just delivered from the penalty of sin by grace, but grace is active in our lives to deliver us from the power of sin. Too often I speak to people and I see it in myself where we pretend that we are a victim of our sin. If you are a capital C citizen of heaven, you are not a victim of your sin. You have the very power and presence of a holy God at work in your life to bring about the ability to say no. And too many Christ followers, me included, say yes to sin as if we are victims of it. But in Christ Jesus and because of his finished work, we have the power to say no. Where in your life does it feel like sin has power? It doesn't. Because you are a capital C citizen of heaven, purified by Christ and being trained to become pure like he is. You see, Peter didn't say become pure. He said, be pure. He's not telling you to become uh, to do what you can't do. He's telling you to be what Christ has already done in you. And so I have to ask us the question, what things in your life align more closely to the unholy world that we live in? Things that you maybe need to start saying no to and allowing the power of grace in your life to let you grow in holiness, help you grow in holiness. But the grace of God doesn't just teach us to say no to things. It also teaches us to live in a certain way, to say yes to things. You see, God's grace conforms us to the very character and nature of God. You see, grace conforms us to the character and nature of God. Now, I know that that word conformity is one that people don't like, but I've come to realize it's actually not the word conformity that people don't like. It's what you're being conformed to that we don't like. Because actually, there are a lot of people who will conform to a certain eating plan so that they can get six-pack abs. There are a lot of people who would conform to a certain lifestyle so that they can be comfortable. And there are a lot of people who would conform to certain habits so that they can be successful and wealthy. It's not actually conformity that we're worried about. It's what we conform. To. But as capital C citizens of heaven, as, as those who have been transformed by Jesus, we are to be hungry to be conformed to the likeness of God. You see, the same grace that saves us is the same grace that empowers us to grow in holiness. We are to look more and more like our Father in heaven. You know, I, I was struggling because I really felt like I needed to give a ton of examples of things we can say no to and things that we can say yes to. But I actually don't think that would be helpful because I don't think that this sermon is about a bunch of yeses and nos. What this message is about is about a beautiful God who is holy and, and His holiness bringing life and flourishing to lives when we align ourselves to Him. And that what this world needs more than anything is to be aligned to the holiness of its Creator, to see true, lasting, eternal flourishing. This is not about do's and don'ts. This is about, are you hungry for the holiness of God? Do you desire the holiness of God? Do you want to be like your Savior? Do you want to be like your Father in heaven? And if so, go and train. Get into this unholy world and train by the grace of God to become more like Christ. And that might mean you fail a whole bunch of times. One of the biggest breakthroughs again in me fighting sin in my life was when I sinned and the, the ugliness of it and the depth of it was not to run from God, but in His grace run to Him and go, God, this is not who I am in you. Train me, change me, grow me. And I'm, I'm gonna be praying that prayer till the, prayer till the day I die or Jesus returns, but it is changing me. You see, as citizens of heaven, 
this world is the training ground for our godliness, not our playground for satisfying our selfishness. We are to be trained in holiness by grace. And as we do that, we conform more and more to the likeness of our God and we more and more put on display his fame, his grace, his life, and his flourishing. And then finally, point four, citizens waiting with hope for a holy world. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Citizens of heaven, we are awaiting people. What does that mean? Well, it means that we're sober about this world. It means that we, we know that this world is unjust. It means that we know that when we step out into this world, we're going to experience injustice. We're not naive about this world. Jesus is not naive about this world. His word is not naive about this world. We know that it is not the way it should be. And we know why it's not the way it should be. Because of sin and rebellion against God. And we grieve and we lament that this world dishonors our beautiful, holy God. And we also grieve and lament that that means that people get hurt and incredible injustices are caused. And we also know as we soberly wait that this world will never be the way we want it to be because it stands in opposition to God. And I want to just quickly care pastorally for people. I see citizens of heaven giving themselves courageously to change this world, and that is good, and we should. As those who are holy, we should do everything in our power to reflect the holiness of God and bring it about in this world. But I see two groups. I see one group who does that with sober reality, that ultimately they don't have the strength and the power to change this world fully and completely. And they're waiting for Jesus to do that in his power and strength. And they are deeply motivated to keep going and to do all the good that they can do. But then I see another group of people who, who are giving themselves to change the world in their own strength, ability, and powers if in their time they can create this world and make it the utopia they want it to be. And I find them getting burnt out, angry, and tired because there isn't a sober understanding of the reality of what this world is like. This is why we're awaiting people. We're a restless people. We're longing for the return of Jesus where he will completely and utterly bring about justice in this world. And because of that, we're not just awaiting people. We're a hopeful people while we wait because our hope is certain. We know that Jesus appeared and that he will appear again. We know that Jesus will return and when he returns, he will deal completely and fully with every injustice that still exists and he'll hold every single person to account for their injustices. So we wait and we long and we are full of hope for the return of our king. But we're not just awaiting hopeful people, we're a liberated people to do good works. You see, some people would say, oh, well then Ian, why don't we just sit back and wait for Jesus? Why don't we just give up on this world? And that doesn't make sense to me, that question. It actually makes sense to me the other way because the way I see it is that if this world is all we have, if this world is all that exists, if this time that I have on earth is the only thing that there is, then I would say every man for himself. Give yourself completely and fully to making it what you need it to be. 
whether you have the most selfish intents or the most um, noble intents. Give yourself completely to that and, and run after it and do whatever you need to do to make it a reality. But actually, for capital C citizens of heaven, for those who, who know Jesus and have been transformed by him and who have this great hope that this world is not all there is, we are the most liberated, hopeful people to give ourselves fully and completely to the good of people because we know what is true. We know what is good. And we know that God will bring about his flourishing as we fight to align things to his holiness. And we're no longer grasping to make this world everything we need it to be or want it to be. We are liberated to be selfless. We are liber liberated to not fear that time is passing by. I know in my teens, I was like, flip, I don't want to be 20. And then I was 20. And in my 20s, I was like, flip, I don't want to be 30. And then I was 30. And now I'm in my 30s going, flip, I don't want to be 40. And time goes fast. But it doesn't matter because it's not the only time I have. So I don't need to hold on to it. I can give it freely to others. The same with my resources and my money and my energy. I can give myself freely and completely to others and to the good that God would call me to, to give myself to because I'm not holding on to this earth. I'm living for another, the one that I'm truly a citizen of. And we get to be those who are zealous for good works. So our response to this message now is going to be to take communion and uh, we're going to have a song that plays after this. And I really do encourage you to, to take these elements and really reflect on what has been shared this morning. And as you take the bread, to realize that this reminds us that this world is unholy and that the body of Jesus needed to be broken. And this wine or juice represents the reality that in Christ, there is a way for that which was unworthy, that which was um, unholy, to be made worthy and holy so that we could again enjoy the presence of God. This reminds us who we are, that we are the people of God, holy, set apart, that we're being trained and have the ability to be trained in holiness. It also reminds us that as the set apart, holy people of God, we are the most empowered and liberated people to give ourselves to the good and the flourishing of others in this present age. Let's lean into this moment and fully and completely meditate, think about the realities that this represents. And let's let God, by His Spirit, speak to us, encourage us, challenge us, do what He needs to do as we do this and remind ourselves who He is and who we are in Him.